This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Acetone Theosemicarbazone. Do you love terminating the polymerization process of plastic with polyvinyl chloride? Try Acetone Theosemicarbazone today. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change dropped the third and littest installment of their sixth assessment report last week, and with it came a lot more doom and gloom headlines. I did not read the full 2,913-page report, but when I sat down to listen to the author's press conference and read the 64-page summary they put out, is it weird to say that this report actually made me feel really optimistic? Good Wednesday morning, I'm Ethan Brown, and this is Tip of the Iceberg, where I will break down some environmental news and then answer a question from our listeners on the air. Submit questions via Patreon, email, or social media. Patron questions go to the front of the line, so sign up at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. I'm not optimistic in the sense that I think everything's fine. If it were fine, I would not be hosting a climate podcast. I would hopefully be doing my dream job, coming up with new laptop charger shapes. Come on, why haven't we done Pentagon yet? Can we do Pentagon? Let me tell you why part three of the sixth assessment report made me optimistic. This working group three report is called Mitigation of Climate Change. Apparently, Climate Change 3, Return of the Jedi, was taken. The report had 278 authors from 65 countries, 41% from developing countries, and cited over 18,000 academic publications. It's hard to believe 2,913 pages is a summary, but that's exactly what it is. And the report largely was answering the questions of where greenhouse gas emissions are coming from, how we could cut them, and how fast we would need to cut them to meet various targets. And just a disclaimer, this episode is going to have a lot of numbers in it, so if you were listening to this podcast as a fun break between statistics seminars, my sincerest apologies. I promise there won't be a test after. The scary part of the mitigation of climate change report, perhaps, was where global greenhouse gas emissions are today. They are at an all-time high, about 59 billion tons per year. And that's a lot. That's 8 billion elephants, or one mattress when you're trying to move into a third-story walk-up. Seriously, how are mattresses that heavy? They're so soft. But even though emissions are at record highs, the rate of growth is slowing down. From 2000 to 2009, Emissions grew, on average, by 2.1% per year. From 2010 to 2019, emissions grew, on average, by 1.3% per year. Is 2.1% growth to 1.3% growth on track to keep global warming under 1.5 degrees by 2100? No, of course not. But that rate of change is trending in the right direction. It's not that far from 0% growth, 
which would mean our global emissions peaked. A lot of countries have peaked already, in fact. The U.S. peaked in 2007, so we're ahead of the game in that sense. I also peaked in 2007, when I beat my friend in a Harry Potter reading contest in fourth grade. Honestly, I think 2007 Ethan would have had a better shot reading the entire IPCC report than 2022 Ethan. As many listeners may know, the internationally agreed-upon goal has been to keep global warming to under 1.5 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. That would still lead to a lot of damage, but it's something we could reasonably adapt to. The models that the IPCC put together suggest that a 1.5 degree scenario is most easily achieved with emissions peaking in 2025, being slashed by 43% by the early 2030s, and hitting carbon neutral by the early 2050s. I've said before that these 30-year or end-of-century targets are just so vague and easy to shrug off, so I kind of like those milestones. Peak by 2025, 43% in 10 years. Those are concrete goals we can focus on, and based on this report, they're very viable. We absolutely have the technology and ability to get that done. Again, peaking is really not hard. The U.S. did it in 2007, and I don't think any of us noticed. We were too busy listening to Sweet Escape and taking out mortgages. Globally, we didn't pace ourselves well for peaking by 2025, but if we're coming around the bend on the track and we see an ice cream truck pulling in and turn that jog into a sprint, you know, it's doable. We can totally meet that goal if we turn on the jets, assuming those jets use biofuel. What I found really exciting about this report, though, is that they outlined all different possible solutions in all different sectors and analyzed their costs. In the last decade, the cost of photovoltaic solar dropped by 85%, the cost of onshore wind dropped by 55%, and the cost of batteries for electric vehicles dropped by 85%, which is just astounding progress. That puts them cheaper than most fossil fuel options, so give it up for those industries. For context, if you think about the financial cost of a solution, it depends where in the world you are, but it also depends on the degree to which you implement it. Building one solar farm is probably going to save you money as compared to a more expensive fuel source. But if you tried to cover the entire country in solar panels... Then you gotta figure out where you get all the materials from, where you put all the solar panels, how you organize that. It essentially goes from saving money to spending money. It's like the solar industry turned 16 and can drive now. And that's not a bad thing. We'd probably rather spend money on extra solar panels than cleaning up hurricanes. But I hope that concept makes sense. The more we lean into a solution, the less money it will save and or the more money it will cost. So the report made this great graph looking at 43 solution categories across six sectors. Everything from wind energy to solar energy to nuclear energy to efficient lighting and appliances to energy efficient aviation to biking to public transit, a whole list of things. 
and for 38 of them where it was feasible to do this analysis, they calculated how much would this solution cost? And how much more would it cost the further you take it? Of those 38, 16 start out saving money. All the ones I just listed are in that group. Solar and wind specifically can each produce cuts of over 2 billion tons of greenhouse gas emissions per year while still saving money, if that tells you something about how inexpensive they are. Side note, if someone could tell me how they made these into graphs, that would be great. Definitely a step up from whatever free graph website I used in high school that had 50 pop-up ads a second, and you could only choose between bright blue, beige, and blood red. So 16 out of 38 save money. Another 13 would start out costing less than 20 bucks for every ton of CO2 you cut. That category includes things like hydropower, geothermal, energy efficiency, better agriculture practices, better forest management. In fact, reduced conversion of forests can produce cuts of another 2 billion tons per year at less than 20 bucks a ton before it starts getting more expensive. I know, if you multiply 2 billion tons by 20 bucks a ton, that's 40 billion dollars. But for the whole world, that's nothing. That's 5 bucks a person. So if you want to just pay the 40 billion now, we'll all Venmo you. Whereas it costs $95 billion just to clean up Hurricane Ida in the U.S. So you do the math on that one. And remember, this is out of 59 billion tons of greenhouse gas emissions total. So 2 billion tons here, 2 billion tons there, and per year? That starts to whittle down the problem really quickly. Ironically, only one solution out of 38 starts out costing more than 100 bucks per ton. And can you guess what it is? Industrial carbon capture and storage. So what I said a couple weeks ago about CCS being expensive was backed up in a pretty major way there. In addition to demonstrating how inexpensive and even cost-saving these solutions are, the report also ranked the 43 solution categories against the 2030 United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. These are 17 goals the UN put together to make the world a better place. It includes no poverty, zero hunger, better education, gender equality, clean water, economic growth, innovation, world peace and justice, all very good things. The only thing they missed was eliminating people who walk slowly on a busy sidewalk. So the report made a table, with the climate solutions as the rows, the sustainable development goals as the columns, and for each combination, they put a plus if the two had synergies, a minus if there would be trade-offs between the two, and a dot if there were a mix of synergies and trade-offs. One of the 17 goals is climate action, which is not included in the table for obvious reasons. So I went ahead and counted on this table for you, and if I counted right, it appears they studied 396 of these combinations between a climate solution and a sustainable development goal. Of those 396 combos, there were 271 pluses, 113 dots, and 12 minuses. Let me say that again. 12 minuses. 
only 12 times was a climate solution in clear conflict with a sustainable development goal. I've heard for years about how we need to balance climate change with this issue or that issue. Nope, we don't. <laughs> we actually don't. Any issue you care about, most of these 43 climate solutions will help you with that issue simultaneously. And if I can make one more point, 43 categories of solutions, in my understanding, is within the full report, they break down several different ways each of them could be managed or approached politically. To give you a very informal sense, I opened the full 2,900-page report and did a search for the word option, and it appeared 2,004 times in the report. I then realized a bunch of those times were the word adoption. Apparently, Mother Nature has some explaining to do, but all right, if we subtract that out, still... Over 1,500 times the word option. The report is spilling over with options. It's as if the report was answering the question, where do you want to go to dinner? It isn't advocating anything, just laying out every possible idea that policymakers, companies, even individuals to a lesser extent can do. I've seen people on Twitter say, oh, the report says we need to do this solution or that solution. No. They had to fill 2,900 pages. Every solution idea you could imagine is in there. Probably every word in the dictionary is in there. But all these solutions are just there as options. So I don't know how to read the summary of this report and listen to the experts who wrote it and not come away excited. I talk about these synergies and cost savings all the time, but that's even better than I realized it was. I mean, 12 minuses. Are you kidding me? Now, it's easier said than done. We actually have to do these things. But if this report told us anything, it's that peaking by 2025, reducing by 43% around 2030, all that is more than doable. It's doable. It will cost little to nothing overall if done right. And it will help nearly every other global issue. We literally just have to get off the couch and do it. And the fact that this led to doom and gloom headlines and sound bites is absolutely mind-boggling to me. It's disappointing, to be honest with you. Unfortunately, even the summary of the report is very technical and came close to giving me a headache when I read it, but if you're someone who's anxious about climate change or cynical about our chances to mitigate it, Google the IPCC Mitigation of Climate Change Report and read the summary. I didn't see it coming, but 278 of the brightest climate minds in the world just gave me the most optimism about the climate I've ever had. If we pick up the pace on these solutions and stay vigilant, maybe I can actually achieve my dream of inventing new laptop charger shapes. Do you hate it when podcast ads talk down to you as if you don't have a PhD in chemistry? Us too. And that's why acetone theosemicarbazone is for you. With acetone theosemicarbazone, you get a chemical that's classified as extremely hazardous in the U.S. Emergency Planning and Community Right to Know Act and use it to make plastic. Take that, sea turtles. Acetone theosemicarbazone. Because when you add zone to the end of a chemical name, it just makes you envision a trampoline park. 
The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Welcome back to Tip of the Iceberg. It's time for Ask Me Anything, where our listeners get a chance to ask me any environmental questions they may have. Submit questions on our Patreon, email, or social media. Questions from patrons go to the front of the line, so be sure to sign up today at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. We decided to do something a little different today, so apologies to all of you who have sent in questions. I promise I'll get to them. But last Wednesday, there was a fire at one of the largest power substations in Puerto Rico. It led to an island-wide power outage that lasted days. Schools were closed Thursday and Friday. As we record on Sunday morning, there are still some customers without power back. A lot of the news stories I'm reading say this outage resurfaced a lot of the frustrations after Hurricane Maria. But rather than me blabbing about it, I was able to bring in our sound editor and producer, Frank Hernandez, who, as you may know, is from Puerto Rico. He experienced the outage, and I'm so glad you had time to chat with me. Frank, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So this will be our first ever reverse Ask Me Anything, where instead of someone asking me a question, I'll ask you a question. And my first question is, how are you? How's your family? Are you doing all right? Yeah, yeah, no, we're doing all, we're doing all right. You captured exactly the sentiment that we've all in my family and everybody I know is feeling, which is basically just rethinking of Maria when stuff like this happens. Because usually whenever there's a power outage post Maria, it's very much a thing of like some municipalities, like not the whole island loses power. And this thing that happened last week was the entire island, just no power anywhere. It basically just was like another kind of flashback of Maria, everybody trying to get the generators going. It it was definitely frustrating. Yeah, well, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this with us and share with our audience. So power outage Wednesday, walk us through sort of when you realized what was going on, how long it lasted for you, what was your experience like? So it was, yes, it was Wednesday. I think I was, I was reading a book. I was just reading a book in my room and then the power went out. And usually it, the power is off for like maybe two, three hours. So I probably power went off at like eight, 7 PM. And then it was still gone by 1 AM and it was still gone by 2 AM. And then at that time, you kind of just realize like, oh, okay, it's going to be gone the entire night. So I guess I might as well, you know, get the generator going, get the fan going. But then by the next morning, it was still gone. And then it was still gone by like 2, 3 p.m. And then thankfully for my area, it came back around like 4 p.m.-ish on Friday. But then like at like 7 p.m., it disappeared again. So I had like three hours of like electricity and then it disappeared for a couple hours again. And then Saturday morning, it got back. Everybody in my family is, has power now. They're re-energizing the power grid right now. So not everybody has it, but at least everybody I know does. That's really good to hear. I'm glad to hear you and your family are safe. I remember you texted me that power was out for the whole island. And I was like, oh my God. And this was 
on Wednesday, which is your day of editing the Friday episode. So you were saying, oh, I might be a little late. I was like, this is not the first of your worries. <laughs> like, uh, be safe, get some food. Once you came back on, you somehow managed to get it done on time, which baffles me to this day. My main worry was to upload it. And I couldn't upload it because the thing is, if you have no power, so cell towers in Puerto Rico don't work. So I have no internet either. Or the internet I have is like two megabytes. It's like just to yeah. send a message through WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger. It's not enough to upload you know, the files that we upload for the podcast. So everybody's work also got impacted because you know we're still in the pandemic. A lot of people rely on the internet to work. A lot of people rely on the internet to go to school. Schools had to close. It's true when people say it was like Maria and it's like scary flashback because I think that a lot of people, you know, me included, we're not over Maria. Like the realities of Maria are very traumatic for a lot of people. And we can still feel in Puerto Rico the damage that Maria did, not just in like in a physical and like a structural sense, but also like in an emotional sense. Like Puerto Rico has always experienced, you know, hurricanes and has always experienced power outages. But since Maria, it's a different kind of fear. It's a fear for how long are we going to not have power? For how long am I going to have to deal with this? It's, it's definitely scary. Thank God that we're not a hurricane season. Like, that's another thing. Like, we have hurricane season every year. Like, hurricanes are not going to stop coming. And it's a thing of, like, we can't take another Maria. Like, if we take another Maria, it's like our hospitals go down. And a lot of people that are, like, you know, older folks that require hospital services won't be able to get them. What about all the you know homeless people that don't have homes? A lot of them lost their homes in Maria and are still trying to make men's or still trying to like fix their roofs. They still have like, you know, the, the, the new generation, the, yeah, the blue tarps. They still have blue tarps. Like if you fly over San, over Puerto Rico, you fly and you see the entire island over San Juan and over that area, you still see blue tarps. It's a thing of like, we need to do something. We need to fix it before, hopefully it doesn't happen again, but you know, with climate change being the way it is, it's very likely that it'll happen again and we need to do something about it. Yeah, as I understand it, just from my reading, it seems like there was a lot of immediate repair, but then there also had to be long-term strategic planning to say, here's how we make this grid more resilient to a future disaster like this. And it seems like that didn't happen. And that's really scary. I mean, I really appreciate you taking us through this account. I guess my last question for you, in the US, I'm just kind of baffled at the fact that no one I've really talked to knew that this happened in Puerto Rico this last week. And it made me think, I mean, I I could have missed some stories before I try to keep up, but I'm sure for everyone, we may not understand the extent to which uh, certain disasters happen, even an accident like this that wasn't directly climate change, more just brings up a climate conversation. What would you say to folks in the U.S. about what happened, or I guess around the world, and how do you kind of grapple with the fact that we're not always aware of what's happening to someone as close to us as Puerto Rico. I think Maria put us 
on a bit of a sort of like lens. And for a while, like Puerto Rican news was like very much part of like main, like main news. Like I remember Maria happened and then there was like national coverage of, you know, the protests that happened later that year. And Puerto Rico was like a thing that people, you know, in the U.S. actually cared about for a while. And I think it just, you know, time went on and it kind of like that spotlight just kind of stopped shining in Puerto Rico and it just kind of became status quo. Like it was years before Maria of like Puerto Rico has become a destination spot that we go once every two years for, you know, vacation and that's it. I hope this is not, you know, a sign of people losing interest in Puerto Rico, people not caring about what happens in Puerto Rico. Because Puerto Ricans, in the U.S. sense, in the U.S. scope, like Puerto Ricans are American citizens. We're just as American as anybody else in the mainland United States. And, you know, it's if I, I care about what happens in Texas to people whenever there's a natural disaster, like I care what happens to Florida, I care what happens to anybody in New York, I care what happens to anybody in the States, if a national disaster happens, I, I need to know, I want to help. And I hope it's the same sentiment to people in the US. And I hope it's, I hope this was just like a one-off that, you know, there were better things to write about. We're not better, more like more pressing stuff to write about. But yeah, I, I hope, I hope people don't forget about this. I hope so too. I'm glad we could cover this. It was weird when I had a new big IPCC report to talk about. And then I learned about this and I was like I mean this is more important <laughs> but I'm glad we could talk about both today so Frank thank you so much for taking the time to join us uh, send all our best wishes to your family and stay safe out there thank you thank you all for listening to tip of the iceberg take two minutes help out the show and get a shout out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and a review on apple or podcast addict or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin, like one of our latest patrons, Emma Jones. Thank you so much for joining, Emma. We really appreciate it. Emma and all our patrons get merch, bonus content, and their questions move to the front of the line for Tip of the Iceberg. So if you have any questions about climate or environmental news, Emma, send them in anytime. Once again, The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guests. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of Peril and Promise or the WNET group. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you on Friday for the season four finale. Thank you.